The Weekend View on SAFM with Udo Karlser. Saturdays and Sundays, 6 to 7 a.m. 22 minutes after 6, exactly it is here on The Weekend View. Now, normally, the show would be fast-paced. We'll throw in your comments wherever they are relevant to the topics under discussion. And we move to get to 7 o'clock. But sometimes there are comments, thoughts put out in uh, the public realm. That just requires us to to just take a little bit of a seat, just slow things down so we can all understand it and be on the same page and have a slightly deeper conversation. And uh, this morning, we have a panel discussion around one of those very issues. Our Treasury Director General, Dondo Mohojani, opined last month that South Africa was edging ever closer to becoming a failed state. It's a big word. It's a big concept. And debate has been raging whether the country has the characteristics of a failed state or whether it is already a failed state. And believe you me, you you have a look on social media. You can can do an, an analysis to see just how the term is thrown around loosely. Doesn't help us. So we thought this morning we need to have a discussion around it because he was speaking at a post-budget discussion, Mohojane that is, and said things that define a failed state were beginning to show with issues about the poor and improving people's lives taking a backseat seemingly. Mining giant Sibanya Stillwater, their CEO Neil Froneman also entered the fray, reportedly saying because of a lack of leadership, South Africa was practically a failed state, citing the high levels of inequality and poverty as proof. Now, some commentators have warned that high levels of unemployment, serious security lapses, breakdown of law and order, porous borders, a whole range of issues uh, all point towards South Africa either being or becoming a failed state. And others have said since the dawn of democracy, in 1994, we've done really well as a country, is get to that precipice, have a look over it, see what the forecast may be, and then some other country has been able to reel itself back. Now, before we introduce our panel, I'd just like to encourage you to have a listen. If you want to be part of the discussion, please engage with us and ask your questions, have your say. You can share your views with us on 41391. That's via SMS and it will cost you one rand fifty. You want to have voice notes on 0826923909. And you can also call us directly on 011-714-8999. And you can post your comments on Twitter and uh, Facebook. On social media, use the handle at The Weekend View. Mine directly is at Udo Karlsa SA. Now, let me just say that uh, we had invited on the ruling party. The party spokesperson, Dokota Lejuete, uh, is meant to be in this discussion because it's only fair. You need to bring the ruling party into the discussion. For some reason, his uh, phone is on voicemail this morning. So let's kick off the conversation. And we'll keep trying, the ANC spokesperson. But let's kick off the conversation uh, and... and uh, we bring into the conversation here, we joined on the line by David Ansara, the uh, Chief Operating Officer at the Centre for Risk Analysis. David, good morning. Good morning, Uda. Good to have you on. And then also Rob Rose, the editor of the Influential Financial Mail. Good morning, Rob. Morning, Udo. Great to speak to you outside of the cricket field. <laughs> it is good indeed. Now, let, Rob, let me start with you because before we can take the subjective views of, of certain business leaders and certain state leaders into account, let, let's try and establish an objective view of a failed state. You used your article this week and cited the U.S. think tank uh, uh, Fund for Peace to illustrate this. Bre- break it down for us, not only in terms of our position in the world, but what factors are taken into consideration when, when considering a failed state? 
Yeah, I looked at this, um, the think tank, which essentially ranks people, and they've renamed it as a fragile state index, because I think the, the term failed states became politically contested. So they, they now have this fragile state index. And South Africa is pretty much in the middle. Uh, we're ranked number 89. We've been, I suppose, over the longer term, been sliding to some extent. Um, and they have a look at things like, you know, uh, security measures and, you know, uh, the economy, how vulnerable the economy is to, to collapse. Um, you know, what the index says is that the, these ratings don't forecast when states are going to experience violence and collapse, but they measure vulnerability uh, to collapse or conflict. So South Africa is kind of in the middle. It's, you know, we could go either way at this point. And I think that the, the important part is that tra trajectory is downwards. Mm. Um, and I think that's the point you need to, we need to, um, we need to address. They talk of inequality, economic inequality, and that's, you know, that's something that we're a world leader in. Yeah. Uh, state of our economy, it's been going nowhere for a while, um, and the state of the public service, which also isn't great. D David, the Institute for Risk Management cited the danger of, of SA becoming a failed state as one of our top nine risks. Now, you, uh, through through your work, you, you report back on, on, on and analyze things like this, uh, the, this report from uh, the Institute for Risk Management. What does the Institute lay bare as the reasons for it being on one of our top risks as South Africa? Yeah, so, Udo, I think it's important in these discussions to kind of distinguish between the verb and the adjective. So mm. the verb is failing, and the adjective is failed. So I think a lot of people say South Africa is a failed state, and I think that that is a misdiagnosis. It's rather, I think, more important to look at what are the processes and compare South Africa to what it was, um, and then that will help you to understand where it is today and then where it's going. So I think Rob has identified a number of key factors, um, and I think that the Fragile State Index and also this uh, IMSA, the Institute of Risk Managers, they, they also track risks quite carefully. But I think the, the key factors that I would be looking for are law and order, uh, so the extent to which the state can uh, can uh, enforce and protect the rights of citizens, um, the safety and security issues, and then also the rule of law. So you might get a situation where, uh, you know, for example, in a in a more authoritarian environment like mm. what we're seeing in Russia at the moment, where the uh, the ability of the of citizens to protect their own rights against the state. So the, the law and order issue is uh, is more horizontal. Uh, the what happens when uh, citizens are infringing other citizens' rights. Mm. But the the rule of law issue is: Are all citizens treated equally? Uh, are elites held to the same set of rules as citizens? Uh, are there clear and transparent rules? Are there um, are those rules rational um, and uh, legitimate? So I think uh, the, the third issue is what, what Rob was looking at was economic performance. So, I mean, if you look at a, um, a country, for example, like Zimbabwe, they have, they have gone backwards on all three of those, those indices, mm. uh, law and order, rule of law, and, and economic performance. Um, and, yeah, so I think there are some... Uh, I think that our northern neighbor is a cautionary tale there mm. about how how things can deteriorate if you particularly if you have 
uh, a breakdown in democratic processes where uh, you can there still are regular elections in Zimbabwe, for example. Yeah. Uh, but the the ability uh, of citizens to hold their governments accountable is very limited. Uh, there is uh, a kind of a, a two-tier society. There are those who are politically connected elites uh, who enjoy all the, the privileges and access to power, uh, whereas most citizens are kind of economically excluded, uh, impoverished, um, and also subject to the whims of the elites. So I think that is a, a kind of scenario that we want to, to avoid. All right. I'm glad you guys have set the sort of baseline for, for the discussion. I'm just going to take a quick break for our headlines, and then we will come back to our panel. Still trying to get hold of the ANC spokesperson, Dukoto Lequete. He was meant to join us this morning, so we could get response from the ruling party as well. But our guests this morning is David Ansara, the Chief Operating Officer at the Center for Risk Analysis, and Rob Rose, the editor of the Influential Financial Mail. Sitai, gentlemen, we'll be back with you in just a few ticks. Here's Anne Musa with the latest headlines. Hashtag SAFM Weekend View. Just a reminder of what's coming up on the Jet Set Breakfast this morning with Michelle Constant between 7 and 10. The Open Book Festival is back. Two days of engaging with writers on the latest books in the market. This week's guest presenter, uh, presenter is Cynthia Stimple, whistleblower and co-founder of Citizens of Conscious, Conscience Foundation. And as always, don't forget to send in your big fat juicy on WhatsApp or SMS 41391. And the, those will cost you one rand fifty. Let's get back to our discussion this morning. We're talking about, and one of our guests, David and Sarah, and Sarah was very quick to draw the distinction between a failed state and a failing state. Debate sparked around this issue since uh, one of our esteemed public servants, our secretary, uh, treasury, uh, treasury director general, rather, uh, Dondo Mohajane, opined uh, a month ago in a budget discussion that the signs are there that South Africa is heading towards becoming a failed state. Rob. Rose from Financial Mail. Let, let me come back to you, and, and I'm glad that we had uh, the interruption there of the news headlines, where, where we hear of this 350 rand grant that uh, South Africans who are struggling, poor South Africans can now go to any one of their, 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 their retailers to go and draw that money from. And one of the, the major issues for everybody who is assessing this notion of a failing or a failed state is this issue of poverty and inequality. When, when Enoch Godongwana took to the podium, he dedicated most of our tax revenue to, amongst other things, education, expanding the social net and our current national grudge purchase, which is servicing debt, of which ESCOM is the big pull factor. But by virtue of what has been prioritized in relation to what that return on the investment is for South Africa, we could say that, that we've got a woefully inept government, but certainly not one that, that no longer cares about its citizens. Correct or not? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to say, you know, with you know more than more than half the country is now in social grants, um, and that's a that's a terrible situation to be in because those are consumption grants. Essentially, that money is going to, you know, it's going to feed people for the next month, which is necessary because that's where we are as a country. But it's not productive in that it doesn't going to it's not going to produce more income. That's why an investment in education, for example, is a better option. But we're in a situation where we don't have enough jobs now to to be able to accommodate the 18 million people or so on grants mm. or 20 million people on grants. And, and that's that's just, that's not a productive way for the country to spend its tax money. Um, and I think that's the big worry is that we're not, you know, in, in a country that's operating really seamlessly, you, the money you get in, you put towards the next generation, you put towards 
increasing productivity in the economy and society. And this this is where we're not doing it at the moment. We're just basically on a treadmill, keeping people alive uh, because we haven't got enough jobs for them to be part of a part of the economy in a decent way. And I think that's the problem. So I don't think you could ever say we we don't look after people. Um, you, people do talk about the fact that we don't have a basic income grant and whether 350 rand is is sufficient. Um, and those are, I suppose, legitimate questions to ask. Um, but but equally, you know, we don't have an endless amount of money. Mm. Like you say, 20, 20 cents of every rand goes to paying back interest on money we've lent so we can pay things like cars. So you've got, you've got to be careful of that, of that, that equation. Um, but the problem is you shouldn't be in a situation where half the country is on grants. That's the problem. Mm, mm. D- David, the, the president of uh, Business Unity South Africa, Bonang Mohale, uh, quoted in Rob's article in the Financial Mail as saying, South Africa has an amazing ability to go to the precipice and pull back just in time. Uh, perhaps just to illustrate from recent history for, for our listeners, so we can understand and compare the situation we are in now with situations that has come before since the dawn of democracy. Where, when have, have these epochs come and gone since 1994? Well, Udo, Jan Smuts once said that South Africa is a country where neither the best nor the worst ever happened. <laughs> and there, there have been moments where we have come to the edge of the precipice and we've been able to walk back. Um, and you and Rob were talking about South Africa's fiscal situation. And it's actually very interesting to look back over the uh, last uh, 100 years or so, going back to the Act of Union in 1910. And if you look at South Africa's fiscal situation, um, the fiscal deficit, which is the difference between spending and uh, revenue, uh, has, you know, during the, the COVID crisis was greater than it had ever been in the history of, of uh, government record-keeping. So... That includes the two world wars and uh, the height of uh, the states of emergency and apartheid uh, and the financial crisis, the global financial crisis. Um, and much of the economic damage that was caused there was, was not from the microscopic virus itself, but from the, the government's uh, responses to that. So I think it's just important to bear that in mind. Mm. Um, and so we've had a bit of a reprieve in terms of our government finances. So Minister Gorongwana's budget speech last month, uh, you know, he showed there was a, a, a closing of that gap, that fiscal deficit. But as Rob rightly mentioned, our debt profile is still extreme, extremely high. Mm. Um, so in excess of, of 70% debt-to-GDP ratio, that's what's projected. Um, so uh, that debt service costs are now uh, the second largest uh, line item in the budget. So we you know, that is money that could be spent on infrastructure, on critical services, etc. So we really need to, and that debt trajectory is still looking negative, even though the deficit has been uh, shrunk a little bit. Um, you know, that's, that deficit is still about, um, uh, you know, about uh, three times higher than the growth rate. It's about 6%. Mm. Uh, so we really need to get to go. Uh, sorry, it's about 4.5%. Um, so we really need to shrink that down. Um, you know, but I think, uh, you know, just in terms of the, the context of this discussion was Director General Mokhashani's uh, quote there that he said, uh, you know, South Africa is a failing state. So he, he used that, the, the verb version that we were referring mm. to earlier. You know, I think you have to ask, well, well why, uh, are, why are we seeing these trends? Um, and, you know, our view on this would be that, 
that these failures or this negative trajectory are, are a direct consequence of the policy choices of the government of the day. Mm. Um, and, you know, we hear a lot of talk about state capture and the last 10 years. Uh, but if you look at all the measures that we've been talking about this morning, unemployment at 46% on the uh, expanded definition, so 34% on the narrow definition, that rise in social grants uh, in order to ameliorate the effects of unemployment, um, the uh, you know imposition of of uh, race-based uh, policy, you know, and we're looking at the Employment Equity Amendment Bill at the moment, that's before Parliament. There's been a long discussion around expropriation without compensation, which would undermine property rights in the country. So, you know, all of these policy discussions have an effect. Mm. And, uh, you know, there is a kind of a downstream effect. It means that businesses are more cautious, they're less likely to invest in fixed capital formation in, in new projects, you know, whether that's a new mine or a factory, um, because they, they see high degrees of uncertainty. So we have a, a legacy in South Africa of you know, strong infrastructure. We've got a deep capital market. You know, if you think of the JSC, it's one of the most liquid uh, uh, exchanges uh, in, in the world. It's in like the top 10. Uh, even though there's been a lot of delistings lately, it's still uh, you know, kind of a globally recognized um, equities exchange. Um, you know, so and we've got a sophisticated banking sector, services, uh, insurance, financial uh, services, etc. So we've we've got a lot of uh, a lot of strengths and advantages, but we're not leveraging those. Mm. And you know, in many ways, our policy framework is is holding us back um, from realizing our potential. So if we don't address the core issue of the, the policy framework, and a lot of that is informed by the ideological disposition of the government. Uh, we're not really going to see many positive changes. Okay. So, you know, I think the message here is actually quite a positive one, that there is a, a massive untapped potential in South Africa. But if we don't remove those uh, self-imposed constraints, then we're actually going to worsen a lot of our, a lot of our poverty, a lot of our unemployment and, and economic exclusion. Now, I want our listeners to share the views with us on 41391 via SMS at 50 WhatsApp voice notes on 0826923909. And you can also call us directly on 011-7148-999 and your comments on social media at The Weekend View. Mine directly at Udo Karlsa SA. Once again, Rob, uh, David has, has drawn a very important distinction there between the, the policy direction, the trajectory that South Africa's been on and the net results that it's had towards this notion of a, a failing state. The other side of, of that coin, Rob, and I want you just to, to spend some time here, is that if we look at the Zuma years, what started off as, as a project of national importance to reset the focus on the poor instead of just business interests, effectively the net result of that was the, those same people launching a, a selfish assault on the very national assets of the poorest of the poor. So, so that was a failed experiment. We're living in, in, with the net result of that in South Africa as well. And, and I just want you to talk about that and, and how this current administration is looking to reel us back from the precipice in the way that it's dealt with the aftermath of those years, the Zuma years. Yeah, I mean, if you if you remember what Sir Ron Pauza said at his State of the Nation, it's that business creates jobs, not government. And I think that's a fundamental starting point. If you if you create policies that are 
that are alien to business and makes them uh, makes business not want to invest, then you won't have a situation where they're creating jobs to to um, to feed people. Uh, and the fact is that politicians don't create jobs; they just essentially collect money from people um, and then they dole out money. And if they if you don't have a conducive business environment, nobody's going to pay taxes. So I think if you you know um, you need to make sure that there are companies operating conducively in your country. And I think that's where Jacob Zuma, besides the pilfering, um, I think that's where Jacob Zuma went wrong by completely forgetting that focus. Then there was the pilfering, which you mentioned. Um, and that, that created reputational aspects for South Africa. And I think that, you know, it's also lack of accountability for what happens. We've seen, you know, we've had years since state capture happened and there've been no real, no real arrests. We've had, we've even had like big financial crimes, like Stanov, Tongat, those kind of things. We've had no, no arrests or prosecutions for that. So we've seen just a lack of accountability in our public service. And, you know, that's the one thing is that you don't have a situation where you are measuring what you're getting from your, your public servants in terms of your spending. Your police are completely meaningless. I mean, they do nothing. We saw on TV, we watched the police stand by and watch the, the, the looting and nothing happened. So there's no sense that People talk in the budget, we need more money for the police, but why do we need more money for the police? Because every rand we spent isn't being used optimally. So I think you need a better, a better situation where you're able to monitor the effectiveness of the money you, you use and get better outcomes for the public. Um, it's basically been a public service run for the benefit of the politicians rather than one run for the benefit of society, which is what it's fundamentally there for. And I think that that's, that's one of the issues that, that has weighed us down, just, just the you know, lack of bang for our buck. Uh, we're not going as far as we could as a country, like David mentioned, um, partly because we're not getting optimal outcomes for the money we spend on it. Um, and this, that's obviously that's an economic argument, but it does it yeah. does extend into the social sphere too. But but David, it, it, it is an important matter to pick up on because, uh, and Mokhajane, when when he gave that uh, discussion after the budget, basically summoned leaders of South Africa to get off their backsides and effectively lead. And, and I would imagine that part of that would be making sure, as Rob put it now, that we get bang for our buck. How do we as a country begin to, to turn the tide in making sure that what we are spending, there is a real return on our investment? Well, look, I think uh, Mr. Mokhashani has some uh, power at his disposal to, to change some of these uh, these negative trends, you know. So, you know, I think what was very interesting about uh, the context of this discussion, I mean, we, uh, you and Rob were talking about the Zondo Commission, and uh, in the, the Commission's report, uh, you know, the Section 532, uh, Zondo says, ultimately, in the view of the Commission, the primary national interest is best served when the government derives the maximum value for money in the procurement process and procurement officials should also be advised, um, or, or should be so advised, he says, end quote. So, you know, I, I think a lot of these discussions around failed service delivery and poor performance, for example, in the police, as, as the two of you were discussing, you know, a lot of that comes down, actually, and you consider ESCOM, to procurement failures. Uh, so... The, the state has a lot of buying power. It's procuring goods and services from the market. But a lot of these procurement processes are actually uh, abused and uh, by corrupt elements, so politically connected individuals are, are then disposing of, uh, dispensing patronage through this procurement system. Mm. And 
at the same time that Mr. Mokoshane was, you know, was raising these red flags, rightfully so, he also put a freeze on all new tenders. Um, so there was a, a circular that was distributed to all government departments on the 25th of February to say that, um, you know, in response to the recent constitutional court judgment, um, which was basically uh, regarding race-based uh, uh, criteria in in procurement, mm. and also uh, basically, uh, you know, raising issue a, a technical issue around does the national treasury have the ability to impose proc- uh, procurement criteria on all state departments, as so state-owned enterprises, provincial administrations, etc. And so, you know, this um, this is now. Uh, kind of thrown sand in the gears of our procurement process. And the minister actually does have certain powers, for example, um, in in the Procurement Act, mm. to, in the interest of national security or in public interest, um, to actually waive certain, uh, certain criteria in our procurement law. And a lot of the ways in which uh, there has been this abuse is because of... Uh, you know, race-based uh, BE criteria in public procurement. Mm. So he does actually have the ability to waive some of those criteria and to, and to actually make, uh, make our procurement system much more in line with the recommendations of the Zombo Commission. To say, we're going to make tenders available to the, 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 the most efficient service provider, the best service provider, regardless of uh, the color of the skin of the directors of the company, and this would help us, I think, to be much more, uh, we'll get that bang for buck that you gentlemen were talking about. However, yeah. however, and, and here's the consideration we need to make in the year 2022. And, and the institutions that have looked into the causes, for instance, of our unrest in July last year, cited more, more than poverty and, and unemployment as the core threat to South Africa's stability, the internal strife within the ANC. And and if we look at it from that context, you've got Mr. Mokhojane raising his voice. And and I'm sure he understands the power that he has. But but Rob, are, are we not seeing this year particularly the movement towards getting away from this precipice almost being hamstrung by those two centers of power by, by the strife that is happening within the ANC? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, um, you have a situation where you do get to the precipice and then, you know, the, the clear rational heads in the party and government take control and arrest South Africa back. Um, but then, you know, the, the room temperature IQ elements of the ANC um, take South Africa back to the precipice again. They reassert control. And I think that you see that you see that so often. Um, I was speaking to a couple of economists last week about about the ANC and the state of it, and they, you know, they said that so many of them just just fail to realise that they just don't they just don't even grasp the reality of where the majority of the country is. And there are some people who get it, and then there's just people who who are manifestly self interested, and, and I think that that's, you know, you, you aren't implementing policies that are that are good for for the people, and you're certainly not ensuring ensuring mechanisms to make sure that what you spend is, mm. is well spent and ensuring accountability. So I think the party is a big problem. Um, 
And I think the, the, the party still has immense control and it's, it's listless. I mean, I think that you'd have to say that Ramaphosa's performance, um, where he's failed to act when he should have act, acted, is, is primarily because of factions in his party holding him back. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you see more than that. You see elements of, you know, now with Ukraine clearly represents his own loyalty towards Russia. So it's not as if Ramaphosa doesn't have his, his own issues. But I do think the fact that he's been essentially stagnating in molasses for the last five years or four years is, is a reflection of the, the party's factionism. Um, and that's preventing South Africa from, from going forward. All right. Uh, I, I want you, gentlemen, just to keep your, your notepads and your pens out because we've got a couple of comments from our listeners and perhaps you can get your reaction to it. Uh, let's hear those now. Hi, Udo. Yeah, it's really here in Kuma, in Fontey. Yeah, South Africa is already a dismal, a dismal failed state on leadership under the following elements. Um, corruption, crime, um, high rate of unemployment, borders, porous, and many more since the dawn of 1994. Thank you. Morning, Odo. South Africa is not a failed state. Uh, yes, there are challenges economically and politically. Uh, but I've realized that uh, most of the people are commenting. They resort mostly on politics. They are commenting from the political side of things. But I think it's not a failed state yet. A failed state is, takes a long to be a failed state. Even the USA debate, they say uh, we, they are a failed state. The opposition says so. Uh, even in Britain, they blame... Uh, Boris bringing Britain to, 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 to being a failed state. I think uh, the economy is still st uh, stable and far from being a failed state. Well, there we go. That's the views, or, or those are the views of some of our listeners. And I'm glad that uh, right at the top, uh, David, you drew that distinction between failed and failing state, because also said in the intro, we, we tend to throw this uh, this term around so loosely. I, I, I think we, we, we've got a good base of, of where we are at now from, from the discussion that we've had. But I, I do want to ask you, uh, David, uh, perhaps just some of the main characteristics of nations who, who've gone the same trajectory, who've, who've gone the same route of seemingly being a failing state, but have been able to pull it back and what those nations have been able to do? Yeah, Udo, I mean, I think um, it's, it's very interesting to look at Latin America, uh, which has similar problems and, and challenges and a, a troubled history as well. And so if you consider a country like Venezuela, which at one point was the world's largest oil producer, um, quite a diversified economy. Uh, you know, they had lots of problems, uh, but they were fairly you know, productive. Um, and systematically, uh, the Chavez and then subsequently the Maduro regime uh, eliminated private property rights. They uh, manipulated the electoral process. They clamped down on the rule of law. And today we see... Uh, you know, poverty is through the roof. Uh, they're no longer producing very much oil, even, which is their, their biggest natural resource. 
and uh, there's a lot of crime and lawlessness, and, and there's uh, very little that ordinary citizens can do. And we even have cases of starvation in, in that country. Mm. So I think that's a real cautionary tale of how bad things can get. Argentina also used to be the, the sixth largest economy in the world uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. It was a major exporter of uh, leather and, and other goods, agricultural goods. It's now declined in terms of living standards and uh, GDP per capita. So I think that's also another example of a country that has just failed to realize its massive potential um, and has you know, suffered a lot from economic problems. So those are the negative mm. case, case studies. But if you look at a country like Colombia, um, and uh, I'm sure many of your your listeners would have watched Narcos. I haven't watched it, but um, you know, it's you know, this is a country with a history history of violence. Um, the narcotic trade has like really uh, decimated many communities there, um, and you know, this is a, a vast country uh, with lots of com- competing interests. But you know, throughout the last twenty years. Um, the Colombian government uh, have you know, really set about to build the country as a much more competitive nation. Mm. And, you know, in many respects, they, they've got a long way to go still. But they've managed to, to boost economic growth uh, through sensible policies. They've, uh, you know, become a lot more open to the rest of the world. Uh, they have, uh, you know, limited state interference and, you know, let market forces uh, be more determining of of, of how businesses operate, um, you know. So I think a lot of these a lot of these policy interventions. I think we sometimes in these economic development discussions we overcomplicate things. Mm-hmm. You know, we look at very complex technical models and we consult PhD economists about the right policy mix. A lot of this is just about uh, harm avoidance around just the the state's role should be to play a facilitating role, to play an oversight role, but not a, it shouldn't be the central actor in, in an economy. Okay. Um, right. And so I think that there's a real lesson there. Um, you know, also, if you look at the, East, the Southeast Asian economies as well, countries like uh, Vietnam, Singapore, you know, they've, they've really uh, liberalized a lot of their, their economies and, and they've enabled citizens to, uh, you know, to be free to pursue their own economic ends, and that creates a lot of prosperity and wealth in the country. David, um, uh, uh, rather, Rob, I'll give you a final word in just a bit. I want to come to some of the messages of our listeners once again. And uh, R says, I like David's take of untapped potential, constrained by policy, ideology, and propaganda, plus one-line solutions. He's captured minds of voters. Uh, Vili in Stilfontein. South Africa is already a nauseating failed state uh, due to leadership, he says. And then Jan in Garden says, a failed state is when the state can't even remember or doesn't care when it uh, commits to being on a radio show and fails to turn up. Still no sign of Ducoto Lejuete, I'm afraid. So uh, for now, you hold sway. Uh, Udo and fellow FM listeners, good morning. My name is Tulani Nzima in Credit. No, Udo, this is very interesting. Uh, whenever we are pointing out the failures of, of the Sir Ramaphosa administration, we want to drop uh, uh, the presidents of Jacob Zuma into, into question. Uh, we blame the, the state of capture, whatever that means. We blame the Guptas. We blame everybody except the current administration. If, if we're to accept that, then let's just accept that the ANC government is failing as a whole 
because of apartheid because we want to use scapegoats remember udo the presidency of of of, of ramaphosa they've literally done close to nothing not because of COVID. so rob rose off the back of that message, you spoke earlier about how at least some of the staring and teetering over the precipice has been arrested in uh, the last couple of years. But final words in response to, to that comment that just came through now and what's going to put us in reverse? What's going to take us away from the precipice? You know, I think as well, you look at that comment in the context of what David said earlier, you know, using the words failing. I think it might be fair to say you could argue the state is failing because it's it's not doing what it's meant to do, and it's not looking after the majority of society in a real substantive way. So I think that could be a, a fairly fair assessment. Um, but, you know, I do think it is possible, like you've seen, these countries that have come back from the precipice. We've talked about it. You know, Cambodia had, had massive wars, Vietnam, places in Southeast Asia, and they have come back. And they've come back primarily through reinstituting security in, in a big way. Um, you're, you, you must have a strong security apparatus. You must know that there's consequence and accountability for your politician and better governance. And I think from there, things flow. From there, you get businesses investing, you get um, international loans again, you you can proceed from that basis. But you can't have an insecure state where there's no consequence. And I think that's why the July unrest last year was so, was so frightening, because people were steering over the edge, over the precipice, into what a failed state might look like, where there is no control, no sense of accountability. And I think that's, that's the danger. Um, but we're not there yet. I mean, I one of your earlier listeners said that, you know, we're not a failed state. You compare it to Liberia, Zimbabwe, we're not there yet. Final word there to...